Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. We're called to the same mission they were called, and oftentimes the church is guilty of the same sin that derailed them. And that is, we look out at the world that we're supposed to be loving and, and reaching out to, and we're like, man, I don't know, they might corrupt me, they're dangerous, they're, they're defiled, they're everything we would be if, had the Lord not cleansed us and, and, and begun a transformation of us. Today we move on into Luke chapter 2 and a message that Pastor Sam has entitled Jesus the Early Years. As we look at the remainder of chapter 2 starting in verse 21, we will be considering the early life of Jesus Christ before his earthly ministry and before he began to call his disciples to follow him. Let's listen in. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We pick up at verse 21, title of our study this morning, Jesus the early years. The passage before us this morning pretty much gives us the entirety of what scripture has to say about the early years of Jesus. And it's interesting to me as a student and as a teacher of the scriptures because, well, you would think if there wasn't a lot of press on something, it might not be that important. But I'm actually thinking the opposite is true. The fact that we have very little said about the life of Jesus' early years means the few things we do have are exceedingly important for us to look at. Now, I have observed over the years that wherever God's silent, men feel a need to fill in the blanks. And so uh, you have a lot of movies and television shows and PBS specials and books and about the missing years of Jesus or the early years of Jesus. Some of them not all that bad. If we're trying to fill in cultural blanks, that's easy to do. You can be sure of these two things. Joseph, who was raising Jesus, though Jesus was not his son. He was the son of God, born of his mother, Mary, who was a virgin. Joseph would have taught Jesus the word of God. That was the responsibility of every parent. And certainly Joseph would have taken that responsibility seriously. Now, it doesn't tell us flat out that he did it, but it's clear and we'll see it in the passage. At 12 years old, Jesus has a working knowledge of the scripture. And it wasn't just like miraculously downloaded to him from the father. He had to study the way we do and learn and, and process and think and apply. We'll talk about how important that process is for each of us and for those of us who are raising families. And then, well, we know that Joseph would have taught Jesus a trade. Joseph was a carpenter, so Jesus would have learned a trade. How do we know that? Because for the Jews, they had a saying, teach your son a trade or you teach him to steal. So every father would have taught his son the word and every father would have taught his son a trade. So if people are saying, well, these are things that probably happened. Well, we can say they most certainly happened. There are others, though, that want to get outside of what was culturally practical and, and observable and common to say, well, we know some things about Jesus that aren't in the Bible. There are many spurious books related to the early years of Jesus. Uh, there's the Gospel of Thomas and, and uh, 
you don't find it in your Bible because, well, it's not biblically inspired. In fact, it has stories about how Jesus wasn't exactly who Luke presents him to be. I'm going to trust Luke, see? And, and the thing is, 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 well, they have a story about like how Jesus, when he was little, he had his friends around and, and there was a dead fish, not just a dead fish, but a dried fish. And, you know, and, and he put in the water and miraculously he brought it back to life and it swam around. And, and I'm thinking... All the miracles Jesus does, as you really look at the miracles in Scripture, they're always benefiting someone. He doesn't do them just to entertain his friends. He doesn't do them just to, to well, here's the deal. How do we know that those stories are false and, and, and how can we be sure they're not true? Well, John tells us in his gospel, after the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned water to wine, this was the beginning of signs. This was the first miracle. The first miracle happened after Jesus' baptism, after Jesus' anointing, after Jesus printed or preached, excuse me, a repentance. And so, well, all of that to say, if you're interested in what was going on in the early years of Jesus, and if you're looking for some great examples, those of you who are raising kids or investing in kids, a part of the children's ministry here or elsewhere, well, we're going to see some wonderful examples here. We read it was when eight days were completed, verse 21 here in Luke 2, that eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child. His name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. We see first of all, and it's a minor point today, but it becomes major over the years, that Jesus' earthly parents, those who were raising him, were obedient to the law. The law said the eighth day was the day for circumcision. They made sure that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. They made sure that they named him Jesus, the name given to Mary and then to Joseph by the angel who explained the miraculous nature of his birth. So we have this beautiful illustration, this wonderful example from the get-go of, of two people committed to doing the right thing by the one they're raising for the Lord. And, and by the way, if you have kids, he, they are entrusted to you. They are a sacred trust. They belong to the Lord. He's entrusted them to you. You only have them for a while. And so you want to make sure that you're getting all the good examples you can and follow them, that you're obeying the word of God as it gives us direction. Well, next we read when the purification or days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Circumcision of the Lord, eighth day. On the 40th day, well, they came to make an offering so that, that well, Mary could be cleansed and, and uh, of her ceremonial impurity associated with childbirth. Now, for us, because all of that is like pretty much not our thing, that's what was going on under the law. And they're simply, again, obeying the law, doing exactly what the uh, scripture said to do. But there's something here you could easily miss. We know that that. Well, when the 40 days were up, if you had a male child or 80 days, if you had a female, the days of purification would be fulfilled. And in Leviticus 12, 6, let me read it to you. Rather for a son or daughter, she shall bring the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove as a sin offering 
to the door of tabernacle of meeting. Now, the purpose of this offering, and you should know, a lamb for a burnt offering, burnt offering is an offering of consecration. A sin offering, that needs no explanation. It's not being offered for Jesus, it's being offered for Mary. But at the same time, they're about to... to um, uh, dedicate him to the Lord. And as a part of the dedication, there was this redemption scene. It, it comes out of the book of Exodus initially. The Lord spoke to Moses. This is back in Exodus 13.1. You don't have to go there saying, consecrate to me the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. So track with me for a moment on this. Firstborn belongs to God. Firstborn would become head of the household, would receive a double portion of the inheritance. The firstborn would be the one entrusted with the family if anything happened to dad. And the firstborn would be the priest of that family once dad passed on or was out of the scene. And so very important. Now, in the book of Numbers chapter 3, God alters the whole thing. The Lord speaks to Moses saying, Behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine because all the firstborn are mine. On the day I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. So what's God doing? He's going from having a priest in every household to saying we're going to have the Levites as a representative tribe so that the firstborn from every household would now be redeemed instead of offered to the Lord, instead of serving in the tabernacle, he would have the Levites take care of it. Now, there's more to it. And I believe it was Gail Irwin who first pointed it out that that if you're familiar with, well, why he and many of us believe Jesus kept Peter, James and John close, not because of their great potential, not because they had so much going, but because it was just dangerous to let them out of his sight. Well, the same thing was actually true of the Levites. You'd think, well, he chose the Levites because of something wonderful about them. But if you actually go back and read the story, here's what you'll discover. These guys were dangerous out of the sight of the Lord. So in essence, he says, I'm going to have you serving in my tabernacle. You will surround me and I'll be right there with you. But in any case, here's what's important to us today. Here's what we can take home and chew on and apply. The church down through the ages, especially the, the um, more liturgical churches, they have modeled their priesthood after the Levitical priesthood, in other words, you have a high priest, they might call him something else, but they have a high priest, and then you have those priests that serve under, and then you have those Levites that serve throughout. But the biblical mandate for the body of Christ is that we all serve as priests unto our God. We are a nation and kingdom of priests unto our God. That's what the Bible teaches. The priesthood of all believers in Jesus. So we're actually more modeled after how things were before that priesthood. We have our high priest, Jesus, and that's well and good. But apart from him, Every father is to be a priest in his household. Every husband is to be a priest in his household. If, if you're like me and you think, you know, there's a long time between the first of the month when we share communion and the next time we do that same thing. 
Hey, take the bread and take the cup and share in communion with your family. When friends come over, instead of breaking out the, uh, the backgammon, break out some bread and the cup and, and open the Bible and say, let's look at the passage where Jesus said to do this in remembrance of him. My suggestion is that, especially if you're raising kids, there needs to be some reality to the everydayness of your spirituality. It can't just be Sunday school and then maybe a midweek or maybe not and then Sunday school again. Well, all of that to say, here God is honoring them as they come to honor him. She brings her sacrifice and uh, as Jesus is going to be dedicated, we pick up in verse 25 and we learn some things about a guy named Simeon. We read there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. Pause there for a second with me. Just and devout. The first is a gift of God imparted or imputed by faith in God. The second is a response to the fact that he has justified us. Whenever you were, read the word just in scripture, you want to remember the play on words. God now deals with me just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. That's what it means when he says someone is just. It's the same thing as when he says someone is righteous, knowing we have no righteousness of our own, our righteousness imputed, imparted. It is the gift of God received by faith. The devout part, though, means he was totally dedicated to the work God had given him to do and the ministry God had called him to. First thing we read of him, besides that he's just and devout, is he was waiting for Jesus. Now, I know it says waiting for the consolation of Israel, but that is a messianic title and a messianic pr promise of the coming Messiah. He was hanging out in the temple waiting for the Lord to come. Now, it's a glorious picture for us because we, of course, are supposed to be looking for what? the coming of our Lord. We can look at what's happening in the world. We can know we're getting close, but our eyes are supposed to be fixed on heaven and our ears listening for the blowing of the trumpet when the dead in Christ rise first. We who are alive and remain are caught up together with them to be with him and we'll see him and be like him. We, like Simeon, are waiting for Jesus. The only difference, he was waiting for his first coming and we are waiting expectantly for his second. We read three more things about him important to us. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Latter part there of verse 25. The Holy Spirit upon a life just means that one is, well, empowered by God to do the work of God. My pastor, he was fond of saying, so I'm sure he still does, that it's so frustrating. In fact, nothing more frustrating than trying to do the work of the spirit and the energies of the flesh. You just can't pull it off. And so here's a guy who is, well, filled with the spirit. It's a synonym to have the spirit upon a life is the same as to have your life filled with the spirit. And the evidence of that, well, you'll be empowered to live your life for him. You'll be empowered to be a living witness for the Lord. People will see that you're righteous, not just religious. The next thing we read, it had been revealed to him, verse 26, by the Holy Spirit, 
that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Not only empowered by the Spirit, but listening to the Spirit. And, and here's where it gets a little subjective. Here's why. There are things God has spoken to me. Now, I never hear audible voices, and my psychologist friends say that's a good thing. But God could speak audibly. If he did, I just want to be sure it was him. But here's, here's my point. The Holy Spirit guides and directs us. He speaks to us, and mostly he speaks to us in the inner man. He just confirms we're reading the word or we're considering it or we're in a conversation and someone asked a question and the Holy Spirit brings to our remembrance the things he's taught us. It's a promise of scripture. So what happens is, is we can say the Lord showed me and, and the Lord told me. And oftentimes that can be the truth. But here's where it gets subjective. There's no way to prove it. And I have interesting things happen because of the position I'm in from time to time. A lot of single guys and gals in the church. And so guys will come up and say, Pastor, I, I got to ask a favor. And I'm like, what is it? Well, the Lord told me she's the one. Would you tell her? You know, and I'm like, no. And because I, I, I'm like, listen. If the Lord told you, let's just pray the Lord tells her because that's not my job, you see. And I can't know if she's the one. And my concern is always this. Not is she the one or is he the one, but are you becoming the one if you're single that God wants you to be? So when you do find someone that you think, man, she's perfect or he's awesome or amazing. It's your prince charming and, and your little princess and, and it looks perfect. But the real issue is, have you become the man God wants you to be? Or are you becoming the woman God wants you to be? Because that's really where our focus should be. It's the only time we turn inward and say, make me the person I need to be. Well, in any case, because that's very subjective, I can never say with any assurance, well, if someone says, well, is she the one? Do you think I should marry her? Listen, that's never anybody else's call. And I've found it's really foolish. I mean, if you say, well, I wouldn't do it if I was you. And that's going to cause some problems if he decides to marry her, you know. And, uh, and, and if you say, yeah, you should marry her. And then it gets weird. Then it's sort of like, well, my point is this. I don't know who's Mr. Right or, or who's future Mrs. Right. But I do know this. There are principles in Scripture, and if we're operating within those parameters and we're obedient to the Lord and we're less led of the Spirit, listening to the Spirit, we're not going to mess this one up. The only parameter I'm sure of is that the Bible says a Christian is to marry a Christian. Now, I know lots of Christians who haven't, and I don't know any who couldn't testify of the difficulties of being married to a non-Christian. Now, I do have to be honest, I don't know a whole lot of Christians married to Christians who would say, well, there's no difficulties here. No, marriage is difficult because it's the relationship that requires me to, to every single day and hour and minute, if I'm thinking rightly, to, to live for Pam instead of myself, to live for my kids instead of myself. It, it, it requires me to not be selfish. And I'm an expert at selfishness. I'm still learning selflessness, Christ-likeness. So all of that to say, it's a subjective thing. But it's clear that the Lord had spoken to him. He had revealed the future. He said, by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to die before you see the Lord's Christ. And then note one more thing about Simeon that's so awesome. Verse 27, it said, so he came by the Spirit into the temple not just empowered, not just listening, but led of the Spirit. And, and it's so 
important that we be led of the Spirit. Now, the scriptures say a man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And he does that in only two ways that I'm aware of. Well, that I can be sure of. And one is the word. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God shows us the way to walk through his word. And then by his spirit, he deals in those areas where we're not sure, should I turn left or should I go right? And there's nothing unbiblical about either direction. We have freedom to choose. And in that freedom, then we need to pray for God's wisdom. And we're going to see that that's something that Jesus possesses. Even at a young age, we're seeing it's something that Mary and Joseph possessed, that Simeon possesses, and we'll see it in Anna in a moment. Well, in verse 27b, when his parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, Simeon that is, and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. There's a fulfillment of a promise here. It's a promise Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount, but it was already true. The promise, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And here's a man who is pure in heart. He's devout and dedicated to the Lord and the things that the Lord has for him. And the Lord says, you're not going to die till you see my salvation. You're not going to die until you see the Savior. And he has the privilege of dedicating Jesus to the Lord and to the work of the Lord. And then take note in verse 32, so important, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. You know, the Jews of the first century, they considered Gentiles to be unclean, uncircumcised dogs. And it's one of those things where that's not the whole story. To be like, if you were a Gentile and a Jew called you that, you'd have to say, hey, don't spare my feelings. Tell me what you really think. Because they really looked down on the Gentiles. They would never interact or eat with them, break bread. I mean, they, they wanted nothing to do with them. And here's the irony. From the very beginning, God made it clear that he didn't choose Israel because they were special. They were special because he chose them and he chose them to be a light to all nations, his ambassadors to the world. And by the way, at this time in history and this present dispensation, that's our mission. Is he done with Israel? Romans says not. Revelation says not. Jesus says not. James says not. No, God has still got a plan for Israel. He promised, by the way, to regather him to the land. And he's made good on that promise. He promises that later, after they're in the land, he'll open their eyes and they will come back, not just to their land, but to him. But for now, my point in sharing all of this is that we're called to the same mission they were called. And oftentimes the church is guilty of the same sin that derailed them. And that is, we look out at the world that we're supposed to be loving and, and reaching out to and we're like, man, I don't know, they might corrupt me. They're dangerous, they're, they're defiled, they're everything we would be had the Lord not cleansed us and, and, and begun a transformation of us. Listen to God's words to Abraham. It's back in Genesis, he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now just to be sure we understand, 
Paul, when he writes to the church in Galatia, Galatians 3.16, that ought to be easy to remember. Galatians 3.16 says to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. What's Paul telling us that the prophecy to Abraham that in, would be through his seed, all nations would be blessed, points us to the reality of Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah. First John tells us Jesus died not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. John and John 3 tells, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus that, that uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In our passage today, Simeon is a wonderful example of the type of person we are to be as we are instructed in Titus 2 verses 11 through 14. Those verses speak of one who is to live righteously and soberly as they wait for the appearing of Jesus Christ, as Jesus is in the process of redeeming us and purifying us. Did you know that waiting on the Lord has a purifying effect on you? If you think and live with the idea that Jesus could appear any moment, it's going to alter the way that you think and live. And this is one of the ways that we get to participate in our own sanctification and purification. Live like Jesus is coming today. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.